1: It's Thursday, February 15th, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The worst thing about a mass shooting needs no explication. Of course, the lives lost, the families traumatized, the community's gutted. But there's another terrible thing about mass shootings. It's a little subtle. I think it's personal. Maybe you don't experience it. I do. I know we don't often give voice to it. I'm going to try here. It's during that time between hearing the horror and knowing the details. The time when there is a paucity of actual facts. And during that time, knowing it or not, I find we play a little mental game. We impose a narrative, or actually, what we do is we more, if we're being responsible, withhold full emotional investment until there is a narrative. The whys of the shooting are suspended during these moments. And we don't fully know how to think or what to feel. Now, some of this is proper, waiting until the facts come in. But some of this is self-serving for us as a narrative-driven species. We want to make meaning from these things. And the meaning changes when the details even subtly shift. Let us take a couple of recent mass shootings to illustrate my point. In Kansas City, during the Chief's Parade, If that were a lone gunman aiming for random civilians driven by ideology, that would be one thing. And we would be asking, what is the ideology? And depending on the answer, that would be another thing. Different people would come to different conclusions and feel different amount of outrage or grief. I mean, we probably tell ourselves that it's a tragedy either way, but we feel more or less strongly about things depending on the motivations, quote unquote, it's usually derangements of the killer if that were the situation. But what it really was, what really happened seems to be one of the tens of thousands of disputes that erupt between strangers or acquaintances every day. And it's the hundred or so times that one of those disputes, if someone is armed, becomes a shooting. And that, that set of circumstances means something else entirely. Now, a case where the shooting was motivated by ideology or derangement or the interplay thereof was on Sunday, the shooting in Joel mega megachurch near Houston. Here's how Fox News, the Fox News Network, covered the details of the shooter. The shooter is identified as a 36-year-old Genesee Yvonne Moreno. She had been born a man, Jeffrey Escalante, from El Salvador. That wasn't true. Though Genesee Moreno used different identities, including Jeffrey Escalante, she was a woman. The birth mother of the young boy she dragged with her into the line of fire who was shot and is in critical condition in the Houston area hospital. Fox identified him as five years old. He's actually seven. Fox identified a sticker on the gun as saying free Palestine, it actually just said Palestine. Fox covered it extensively. When more of the truth came out, Fox has backed off. They're not totally quiet on it. It's a less important story to them and their audience. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted about it initially, got more things wrong than Fox did, has been a little silent on it since. Now, local news is covering the story as Fox did. Fox didn't say it was less than a tragedy, but local news is covering it as a tragedy, but one with a different valence, ABC 13 Houston. But police say she was still able to purchase the AR-15 she used just two
0: months ago. ABC 13's Alex Bozargian is live with more of the video, the concerns about how she got the weapon and the law that Texas does not have that might've stopped her, Alex.
2: Hypothetically speaking, if a red flag
0: law was in place, Janice Moreno could have been denied that gun she used to carry out the shooting here.
1: The red flag law. That was the law not in place in Texas. And it certainly seems like it would have applied here. The shooter was mentally ill. Neighbors called police and elected officials warning of the danger. No red flag law, nothing they could do about it. The shooter had weapons seized from her a year and a half ago and destroyed. The narrative shifted. And therefore the very lessons and the importance of the story to different audiences shifted as well. And so too with the Chiefs shooting. It didn't really shift. There was a pause and then there were judgments that had, again, a certain ideological valence. It's emerged it wasn't an intentional mass shooting. So in Missouri, where they are very pro-gun there, you won't get the kinds of discussions that you had after, say, the shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, where a gunman climbed on a roof with the very purpose of picking off parade watchers with a semi-automatic rifle. It's more like... The incidents two years ago during the NBA playoffs, when there was a mass shooting in the crowd gathered near the Milwaukee Bucks Arena. And a few months before that, there was a mass shooting which killed six in Sacramento near the Kings Arena. It was unrelated to a NBA game, however. In the direct aftermath, there was uncertainty. There was concern that people were perhaps intentionally targeting civilians. Basketball fans peaceably gathered. No, it was Armed young men, some were gang-affiliated, though that term is used loosely in situations like this. Some of them had grudges with each other. Some of them were just returning fire. They took offense in the moment. Most of the victims, however, were bystanders. But that all led to a different conversation, a different meaning, a different story. But it's really, when you think about it and you know this, it's not that different. It really all of these cases, no matter the circumstances behind it, are cases of innocent people who don't deserve violence and gunmen or gun women who without guns would just be angry antisocial jerks who get into ill-thought-out shoving matches. But this is America where Super Bowls, parades, mega churches and mass shootings are now inextricably part of the national narrative. On the show today, Department of all time 180s, I talk about chicken wings, appetizer, or entree, and also the conundra or philosophical questions that are meant to be deep ponderables, and I find they almost never get there. But first, okay, we're now at 360 because we're pulling another 180 again. We go back to our conversation yesterday with Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware, who have co-authored a book, God, Guns, and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. We shall wrap up our conversation talking about if anyone, gun manufacturers, gun organizations, should have known they were turning guns into a quasi-religious item. And also we'll get each scholar's pessimistic views on the future. Bruce Hoffman, Jacob Ware, up next. So you've heard me say, perhaps in an ad, in the recent past that first we make our habits then they make us that is a quote attributed to the english poet john dryden i believe he was the first poet laureate it is poetic first we make our habits then they make us let's talk about the inverse of that what do we do when we want to get rid of a habit what about when we think our habits are let us say unmaking us Enter a product I'm here to talk to you about. It's called Fume. Fume is not a vapor, it's flavored air. So what it does is it takes one habit that maybe you're trying to kick and replace it with a behavior that has the look and feel of that habit, but not the detriments. It's pleasant. It's similar. It's replacing a bad habit with a different, more positive behavior. And now with all orders, you could buy one, get one on their cores, which are their different flavorings. You could stock up throughout the year, these cold winter months, something to do, something to exhale, flavored air, so nice. And as a listener of The Gist, you'll get an extra 10% off when you use the code. Head to trifumecom slash the gist and use the code the gist for an additional 10% off plus BOGO cores to help Start making the good habit that much easier. Thank you, Shaka Smart. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedoms for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South, fugitive slaves, and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the Northern States and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can binge this season, American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware both serve on the Council on Foreign Relations. They are co-authors of God, Guns and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. And we shall talk about guns now because it is the access to guns that makes the far-right ideology, so threatening, so terrorizing. A two-part question to start. One, are there any plausible laws that can be passed? And two, the NRA's effort to redefine guns as something other than a tool or even a defense weapon, they became totemic. Do you gentlemen think the NRA knew what it was doing in creating a gun culture that we live with and under today? Well, this is one of the
0: issues in the book where Jacob and I had to in our policy recommendations, look to things that would be practical. Because, yes. as you describe, you know the genie's kind of out of the bottle. Right,
1: right. Japan's in- gun laws, by the way, political assassination, but that would be better. That would certainly suppress some of this activity. But we're not going to get there. Yeah,
0: no, and that's and that's why. Uh, I mean, one of the things we we advocate, and which I think is just commonsensical, is a more efficient and effective enforcement of the laws as they now exist. I mean, we hear too many times of people that shouldn't be acquiring firearms that nonetheless are allowed to acquire them. Are allowed to acquire them. Uh, You know, the problem is look in 2020 alone, 17 million firearms were purchased in the United States. Um, When you look, the United States possession of firearms is more than the next 25 country, top 25 countries in the world that have firearms. The United States is more than that 25 combined. The closest to the United States is a country in the news right now, Yemen with the Houthis. They have 53 firearms per 100 population. The United States has 121 firearms per 100 population, right? So more than one person is fired. So that's why we see this as a problem and one that has to be regulated through better enforcement of the laws outline of certain kinds of ammunition that has absolutely no purpose for sport or hunting, like armor piercing or ceramic piercing, ammunition, and a more prudent approach to this issue. But but you're right. I mean, legislation that's going to roll this back plays exactly into one of the core arguments of this movement. On the back of the Turner Diaries, it's the book has been advertised for 40 years with the tagline, what are you going to do when they come and take your guns? Right. So we have to avoid playing exactly into that fear.
2: Mike, just to add some, some context on that on that point, counterterrorism analysts and criminologists usually look at threats as a, as a factor of intent and capability or uh, motive and means. The problem is if you have capability that's so high, as Bruce said, 121 firearms per 100 people, that means you have to basically try to get intent down to zero to do effective counterterrorism. And that is exceptionally difficult. And uh, we don't have a good answer for that.
1: How much blame do the people who redefined what guns meant to America, how much blame do they accrue to them?
0: Well, assault weapons didn't have nearly the popularity it has today in the 20th century i mean this is being part of a marketing effort and assault weapons you know i mean they're not a hunting weapon for example you don't go out and hunt pheasants with them so that has become very much of a fetish in the sense that it's marketed very aggressively almost every arms maker has assault weapons and this is, of course, facilitated the phenomenon of mass shooting. It's not to say that you can't kill a lot of people with other types of weapons or with handguns. But I think the assault weapon boom in the in the United States, uh, not to mix metaphors, in the 21st century is certainly being a very successful uh, marketing ploy.
1: Couple questions about words. How useful is it that the term white supremacy applies to far radical white right wing actors, but also, I guess, in an academic, um, more popular context, is used to apply to just the general fabric of society? America is a white supremacy culture. Does that help you or hurt you in what you're trying to do?
0: Well, as I said earlier, I mean, this is a movement that's very disparate and that seeks to bring together lots of different strands of extremist thought. And that's why in the book, we're very careful. We call it violent far right extremism. So when you can be an extremist in the United States, that's constitutionally pr- protected. It's where the violence comes in that we're talking about. And we're not talking about the right or the far right. We're talking about people that have staked out a very extreme in a democracy advocating sedition and overthrow of the government is to me an extreme position. So I think, you know, white supremacism is, is just one of the many elements that figures into this, but not the only one. And if you boil it down to just one motivation, you're missing a much broader movement that has become as successful and powerful as it is because of the diversity of the constituencies it's been able to appeal to. Just as I described at the beginning. You have people that don't recognize any form of government above the county level. These are the sovereign citizens movement. That is not a white supremacist movement. In fact, this past summer, African-Americans were arrested in Massachusetts, for example, as part of the sovereign citizens. Uh, It's a very diverse movement. So we've got to be careful in not falling back on a broad generalization that risks misinterpreting the movement. There's lots of Very militant opponents of legalized abortion, for example, that fit into this category.
1: Indulge me for a second. I'll tell you what I think overall about the uh, state of affairs with right wing extremist violence. Um, I'm very concerned about it. Your book was among the best texts I've read to uh, underline my concerns. And I also agree that I don't think that there's going to be a revolution, but you. Posit some sort of uh, outbreaks of sectarian violence. We saw January 6th. However, I do keep going back to the threat of Islamic extremism within the United States. And I was concerned about that too. And I remember this was, you know, 12 years ago. It's not that long ago that how the debate, if it was debate played out is that people like you, Bruce Hoffman would say, this is a very serious threat. Others would say, we're not saying it's not a threat, but we have to very much worry about the civil rights of uh, those who we deem threatening and we have to not paint with a broad brush. Okay, fine. My takeaway was don't get so rattled by the possibility to think that it is eminent to see a terrorist under every bed, empower law enforcement, and it is containable. I feel essentially the same way with right-wing extremism. A little flipped. It's the people on the right saying, don't trample the rights of uh, people who aren't doing anything wrong. But it's playing out to me very similarly. And I don't think we should, I absolutely think law enforcement should have all the tools and your book should be written and we should all decry these public statements by officials who should know better. Maybe we didn't see that by electeds with uh, Islamic extremism, but I also don't think that we should massively freak out and overreact in the same way that we shouldn't have with Islamic extremism. So that's what I think. But Critique what I said, agree with what I said, or tell me why actually these are two very, very, maybe this is the case. These are two very, very different enemies. Uh, Jacob, you could go first if you want.
2: The big counter argument I would make is the violence we've seen has been largely um, scattered, relatively low level targeted at minority communities. I think it's always in, you know, part of our nature to kind of, uh, you know, think that violence that targets the government, for example, is is more serious. Um, So I think it is a serious issue for minority communities in America. It's a serious pressing threat to immigrant communities, to the Muslim community, to the black community. And that is a problem. The other element I would say is we were very close on January 6th to the assassination of a vice president of the United States, Republican, conservative, evangelical vice president. We were not far away during the 2022 midterms from the assassination of the Speaker of the House. Um, So this movement, we were not far away a few years ago from the assassination of the uh, governor of Michigan. So this movement has its sights set pretty high in terms of who's in the crosshairs. And Bruce and I write about this. We've written about it. Uh, you know, in in op-ed since. One of the miscalculations that I think conservatives are making is thinking that this movement can be corralled and kind of dismissed as, uh, you know, nuisance or or being uh, part of a kind of a bipartisan uh, hysteria, right? The the far right also targets conservatives, also targets Republicans, as we saw on January 6th, as we saw recently with uh, the conviction of a, a woman from New Hampshire who sent dismembered pictures to the Michigan chair of the board of canvases during the 2020 election counting. Um, Just because we haven't seen one of those incidents really come to major fruition yet does not mean that they won't. And needless to say, if a vice president or speaker of the house um, is assassinated by the far right, it would be a catastrophic day in our nation. And the reason we haven't had that so far is really luck as opposed to good counterterrorism.
0: I I agree with your your premise. Uh, I think, look, we have to cover a waterfront of threats. And one of our problems that I've seen in almost 50 years of, of studying terrorism now is we shift from threat, threat to threat and we forget about yesterday's threat and only concentrate on today's and we're often oblivious to tomorrow's threat. And this is a huge problem. We have to look at, look at, look at all of them. Now, one could argue, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction and then come back to your point. But look, Jacob and I agree completely. Violent left-wing extremism is also a threat in the United States. And let's face it, uh, before January 6, 2000, uh, you know, 2021, one of the most Serious terrorist attacks in the United States occurred in June 2017, when a gunman professing allegiance to Senator Bernie Sanders didn't belong to any organization, wasn't following anyone's orders. The leaderless resistance that I described as a problem with violent far-right extremists, we see it exactly on the left. He attempted to kill Republicans. Right. At a baseball practice and actually very seriously wounded the then minority speaker, Steve Scalise of Louisiana. And if you want to talk
1: about luck, I mean, the luck there was just that the caliber of his bullets or his aim wasn't different.
0: Right. And also that the Capitol Police were there as part of Mm -hmm. Steve Scalise's security detail and and prevented. You're absolutely right. Prevented this huge tragedy. I think one of the differences in our book, and also let's say the threat from the Salafi jihadi element in the United States, is just the sheer numbers. Uh, Cynthia Miller Idris, a very distinguished scholar of, of violent far-right extremism at American, America University, American University, in her book, Hate in the Homeland, estimates that there are 75,000 violently inclined political extremists on the right in the United States. That's a big number. Uh, New York Times only two years ago said that there were at least fifteen to 20,000 well-armed members of militias that were training for the revolution. So just the numbers are big. But you're right. We shouldn't be blinded to other terrorist threats. And look at Europe. Between 2014 and 2022, there were 105 Salafi jihadi uh, terrorist attacks, lethal attacks there that killed over 400 persons. By comparison, there were 35 far-right lethal attacks attacks that killed 58 persons. So we can't afford to focus on just one threat. And we have to take into account emerging threats, such as our book, but not forget about other threats that haven't gone away. And that's the problem. Just because terrorists are quiet doesn't mean that they're not plotting and planning. As I said earlier, they're the consummate opportunists. They're waiting for a window of opportunity to strike. And precisely our distraction or preoccupation with let's say the newest threat, will leave us vulnerable to an older one. Yeah.
1: And uh, I'll just add, and you've been generous with your time, but this is to me as compelling a topic as there is. I'll just add that law enforcement has been very good in combating these threats. So different people can have different feelings about how agitated they are in their daily lives, how much anxiety they have about an upcoming revolution, or how, how Uh, Agitated, different kind of person was in the year two thousand three about impending Islamic terrorism. But I'm very much an optimist. Uh, I'm not optimistic about where we are right now. But is there something to be said about the fact? And you note this, you know, in the seventy two and seventy three, there were twenty five hundred left wing bombings in the United States. And yes, that lone shooter who uh, shot the Republican baseball game, he was he was left wing it's not that Antifa doesn't exist, even if it's exaggerated. But to me, that was a type of terrorism, Puerto Rican, uh, nationalists and all manner of left-wing terrorists that was so prevalent. It's almost forgotten. And it's, I don't know if it's totally gone away, but it's decreased by 90 something percent. So is there a lesson there? Can we take solace in that? Can, is there a playbook to recapitulate? Well, I'm the more pessimistic
0: of the two of us. Well,
1: that's good because I wouldn't want you knowing what you know not to be pessimistic. Yeah,
0: You know, and and you're right to cite those figures from the 1970s. The reason why most people, though, don't remember them or are completely unaware of them is that the overwhelming majority, not all of them, but the majority were non-lethal. Right, and this is a problem. Going back to your question about Salafi jihadi, or if they were
1: lethal, they would blow up the members of the Weather Underground and the people making. Right,
0: them bomb. or tragically, there would be you know deaths. We're not talking 168 deaths. We were talking about right. low single digits. That's you right. Some poor guy yeah. at
1: a tavern in Lower Manhattan. Right, but
0: that goes back to what Jacob said. Thinking of motivation and intent, then terrorism was quote unquote more symbolic. The death and destruction was not symbolic, but the terrorists were trying to send a message to say, we're here. This is our cause. We want to attract attention to ourselves. I think what we've seen in the past 40 years, largely because of religion in the 1980s, as we previously discussed, becoming a driving force of terrorism, is this increasing lethality. Where it's not just as my mentor and first boss, Brian Jenkins, famously said in 1977, terrorists want a lot of people watching and a lot of people listening and not a lot of people dead. Well, certainly by September 11th, 2001, that had become an anachronism. And that's where we are in the the 21st century, where when people are turning to terrorism, fortunately, the incident of the congressional baseball game remains very isolated. But even then, the goal was lethality, maybe not in triple figures, but the goal was killing, and that's exactly what Timothy McVeigh said when he was interrogated by the FBI after Oklahoma City. They said, "Couldn't you made your point of your hatred of the federal government by blowing up the building in the middle of the night?" And he responded, "No, we needed a body count to make our point." And unfortunately, I think terrorists of all stripes now have embraced that as their mantra, and that's what makes them dangerous. And you know, it's very rarely that it's an intelligence failure, as we saw on 9-11. As we saw on January sixth, twenty twenty-one, as we saw on October seventh, twenty twenty-three, it's not like intelligence didn't have indications. It's that the threat was seen as exaggerated or wasn't specific enough, and our political leaders didn't take action. So we shouldn't be, you know, jumping at shadows or crying wolf. But at the same time, though, in this era, we—I just think this is this is just the way the twenty-first century has unfolded that violence and body counts have become a big part of terrorism and that's the difference from the 1970s that you describe and why we don't remember that there was you know during that period more than one bombing a day across the country
2: mike can i jump in quickly i'm actually going to make an even more pessimistic point than bruce and let me tell you that makes me very uncomfortable because that's usually not how this relationship works.
1: He is the, he is the North, North Star or perhaps the South Pole of pessimism. Here you are, outstripping him. Go ahead.
2: Here, here's, here's the conclusion, I think, that is the right conclusion from the Weather Underground, for example. Uh, the conclusion from their violence is that sometimes terrorists win. Now, the Weather Underground, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe they saw their policies implemented because of the violence, but what they were really fighting for was an end to the Vietnam War and civil rights. And we got those things. Um, yeah. So, needless to say, Mike, if we get, or if the far-right terrorists, if the white supremacists and anti-government extremists get what they want, yeah. it will be catastrophic, it will be the end of the United States as a democracy, and it will be the end of the rules-based Western liberal uh, international order. It would destroy yeah. our lives. So, so you know, that's the more pessimistic take. I think the optimistic take is, and we quote the University of St. Andrews historian Tim Wilson on the last page of our book with this is terrorism is actually a tribute to the power of the nation state. Nobody conducts acts of terrorism because they feel like their ideologies are winning, right? Terrorism is a strategic choice made by people who feel their ideologies are losing. And so we have to remember that we're seeing violence because people are angry at the direction of our society, which is moving in ultimately a positive direction, I believe most of us would would feel overall. Um, and that's a victory, right? So you have to be able to, that's how I think you have to contextualize what we're seeing, uh, and, and, make sure that we're doubling down on those elements of democracy and multiculturalism that really make our, our society so great, as opposed to make concessions to people who, who want to divide us and, and are willing to cause, uh, willing to, to commit acts of violence in order to divide us further.
1: The name of the book is God, Guns and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America. It is a Council on Foreign Relations book, which is, I guess, their version of a James Patterson novel. The authors of this are Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Ware. Gentlemen, thank you both so
0: much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.
1: I'm not going to give you something for nothing but i am going to give you something and it will take very very little so let's think about new year's because that means new year's resolutions and you know for a lot of us it's to save money what you do is you could start getting cash back with every purchase you make on ibotta why leave money on the table or anywhere other than your pocket and your wallet and that's where ibotta comes in ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. So you can make sure you're beating inflation, outpacing inflation, that's what we do. We outpace inflation and Ibotta is going to help us. The average Ibotta user earned $145 last year. Think about what that can buy, a big shopping trip. How about upgrades to comfortable seats on an airline or, you know, a game or concert? Other apps give you points that don't amount to much with Ibotta. Just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you just get the cash. You cash it out in your bank account, PayPal, on gift cards, however you want to do it. Some of the brands that you can shop from include Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buys, more than that. Right now, Ibotta, and soon I'm going to tell you how to spell Ibotta because it's going to blow your mind. All right, I'll tell you now. It's I-B-O-T-T-A. That's important because you need to know that Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code THEGIST when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code THEGIST. Please use the code THEGIST. They give us credit for using the code THEGIST and they keep advertising on their show, making us money, making you money. That O T T A in the Google Play or App Store, and use the code, the gist. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130. That seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the spiel. I'm not generally compelled by so-called ethical conundrum, conundra, I should probably say, by ethical so-called conundrum. That's the best way to say it. But usually the best way to say it is not to say it at all. Don't pose the hypothetical to me, because I always find them, I don't know, much less philosophically compelling than the people doing the posing. The trolley problem? Save the most people. Or, you know, maybe walk. Can a duck-sized horse beat up A half dozen horse-sized ducks. Don't know. Don't care. It doesn't happen. Which one would make the most chorizo? And there's the other big one. Is a hot dog a sandwich? You want to say yes? Say yes. You want to deny it? Deny it. I once went to a, a live event where they debated that. And it was kind of entertaining because the people doing the debating were entertaining. But everyone there, I felt, was buying into the delightfulness or the inherent Ponderability of the question, when really, it's just a dumb question. If you want to consider it a sandwich, consider it a sandwich. No one really cares. Which brings me to what I thought would be another conundrum that's related to food. Headline, CBS Market Watch, on Super Bowl Sunday, Americans will devour 1.45 billion chicken wings, but are they an appetizer or an entree? The chicken wings, not the Americans. And the answer I thought would be, who cares? But the real answer, and MarketWatch did its job, the real answer is America's restaurateurs really, really care. There were so many excellent examples and great quotes in this article. And at crux, the crux of the chickeny issue is that when wings were considered an Appetizer, people would order six wings, pay about whatever it was, 12 bucks, and then move on to the entree. Restaurants made a lot of money. But now that wings are, by many, considered to be an entree, people will just order the wings, still six wings, and restaurants can throw some fries on there and charge 18 bucks. But it's nowhere near the margin they were getting when a restaurant could serve an appetizer of wings and then an entree of something else. I'll give you a few quotes. And all of these restaurants have really good stock symbols. Kevin Hawkman, CEO of Brinker International, which is the parent company of Chili's, stock symbol EAT, E-A-T, says that Chili's introduced wings and people began ordering them just as the entree and they took a hit. So what did Chili's do? It didn't pull wings from the menu. It began to, quote, course correct. Put the wings, tuck the wings further inside the menus because hungry Chili's diners can't really get past. Once you see a jalapeno popper and two or three offerings of mozzarella sticks or loaded potatoes, you can't you can't possibly leaf through all the menu items to get to the wings so they stuck it in the back so fewer people would order the wings thereby thwarting chili's goal of maximizing profit they quote christy marquez vice president of marketing for das beer restaurant so they really were committing to the german with the first definite article then they pull back and say beer garden a sports minded restaurant in jupiter florida that features the dish marquez says her establishment has a grazing style approach to dining, meaning that there is not a distinction between starters and main dishes. And this may be the way to go. Don't say anything. Let people order what they want, but also encourage them to order everything. They also quote Arlene Spiegel, a New York-based restaurant consultant, adding that establishments are well aware that wings— often a fairly spicy item, set the stage for customers to offer more drinks. So they can't pull the wings back because that will make people order fewer suds, or I guess less suds in this construction. The article goes on to quote, the senior manager of Tyson Foods, Chandler Steele. What a name. I'm Chandler Steele, and I'm here to talk to you about poultry. And he says of restaurants that just call themselves wings places like Buffalo Wild Wings, quote, it's changed the perception of how people eat wings. In other words, if you have a restaurant that says we are a wings restaurant, you are very strongly suggesting that wings are not merely an appetizer. Another such restaurant is Wingstop, stock symbol W-I-N-G, The stakes could hardly be higher. Let's listen to Russ Spencer, a senior director at Craft Table, a tech company that services restaurants. And you know they're serious because there's no space between craft and table. Speaking of wings, he says, do they have a high return? Not necessarily. Do they have a high risk? Absolutely. The risk and return of wings. They are the high stakes brain tumor surgery of the appetizer, nay, entree world. No one asked the chicken, the 1.45 billion chickens, or I don't know how many. The answer should be two, but we know how they define a wing. I don't know how many actual chickens go into making what they call a chicken wing. But yeah, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of chickens are going to answer this question. And it might seem that I have no care or concern for the animal right at the center of this conundrum. And it's true, especially when served with a lemon pepper sauce. But... I do want to say there is another common conundrum that I defer to the animals on. and It may have been conspicuous in the fact that I didn't talk about it in the beginning of the segment. If a tree falls in a forest, does it make a noise? I've always thought this was the dumbest question. How egocentric, how anthrocentric can you be? Of course it makes the noise. I defer to the woodchucks. I defer to the squirrels. All the fauna around discern it making a noise. If, and this might sound low stakes with a tree falling in the forest, but underwater? Oh, the effect on the marine ecosystem of underwater noises that even if we're not allowed to hear them is monumental. According to environmental pollution quarterly, anthropogenic underwater vibrations are sensed and stressful for the shore crab, carcinus mianus. Yes, shore crab with mayonnaise. I think that's what it means in Latin. And if the effects on that crustacean aren't evoking of enough sympathy for you, let's speak of other animals. Laboratory studies on the sea hare, which is a marine slug, so a very charismatic animal, reveal that exposure to boat noise led to a 21% reduction in successful embryo development. Individuals that hatched the poor sea hare suffered a 22% higher death rate than sea hair is not exposed. To boat noise. Sonar has affected the behaviors of whales and a lot of the whale die-off reveals that they suffered trauma similar to decompression sickness. This was believed to have been caused by sudden changes in the deep diving behavior following exposure to sonar. So yes, if a tree falls in a forest, of course it makes a noise. You're a terrible person for asking. A woodchuck would never ask. If sonar or an underwater drilling Station makes noise. The whales and the sea hares pay the price. And are chicken wings an appetizer or an entree? Restauranteurs hope the answer is appetizer. And the chickens get no say in the matter. They're just left to wonder how their avian brethren, the duck, got involved in a delightful supposed conundrum where they, the chickens, just get slaughtered by the hundreds of millions. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. You know them as the Queen Mallards. I know Michelle Pesca as the director of special projects for Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is sponsored in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thank you for listening.